Anti-black racism was already a pandemic, okay? COVID-19 has stopped the world in its tracks for over a year now, you know, and it's just now that things are gradually reopening. But anti-black racism, that has ravaged the planet for centuries on end without any pause. Racism is a systemic issue, okay? It's interwoven into the very fabric of the society that we all live in. As conversations around anti-black racism continue to obviously persist and take center stage, I've been a little bit more encouraged by obviously how often that truth gets reiterated. Anti-black racism was already a pandemic, okay? You hear? Anti-black racism was already a pandemic. Now, anti-black racism, for those that don't know what it is, it doesn't just consist of individual traumatic events like being called a racial slur or being followed around by attendants or clerks at a store, right? It's actually deeper than that. Much, much deeper. It's actually built into the very fabric or foundation of the institutions that make up society, which makes it so dangerous. You know? In fact, one of those systems that anti-black racism is literally ingrained in is the Canadian healthcare system. So that's why I and countless number of black folks reiterate, COVID-19 is not the only public health crisis to be concerned with. Racism, when you consider it, it's the root problem of so many things like illness, anxiety, and death. And it's been a pandemic in black circles and we've had to live with it our entire lives. There really is no off switch for it, unfortunately. However, in the past year, there's been some acknowledgement on that front, at least. Last year, for example, the Toronto Board of Health, right? They announced that anti-black racism is now going to be recognized as a public health crisis in the city. The board's memo states that anti-black racism is a historic, pervasive and systemic issue and goes over some of the different ways that it manifests in different areas of life. And these include housing, income distribution, and health services, which all happen to be social determinants of health. Surprise, surprise. It's not really a surprise to black folks. We've been saying this. Now, as we continue to move through life with COVID-19, it's important to acknowledge that healthcare as a whole needs race-based analysis in order to begin dismantling right, what's already entrenched so deeply into the system, right? Racism exists in the very systems that build society. And the way I see it, 
unless dismantled, those systems of oppression, they're going to continue putting black people at a disadvantage. They're going to continue to pathologize us. So again, I reiterate, the healthcare system as a whole, that needs race-based analysis and dismantling. Okay? Now, how does anti-black racism really function as a public health crisis? I know I've mentioned it before, but the simple truth is social determinants, right? They shape our story. They shape the story. They've been shaping the lives of black folks across the globe. And in case you don't know what social determinants are, they're really just social and economic factors that can influence a person's health either positively or negatively. And if we run back to the um, rec to what the Toronto Board of Health recognized last year, anti-black racism that sort of snaked itself around a lot of the social determinants of health, sort of like a malignancy that chokes out the possibilities of good health for black people from the time we're children. Let's take education, for example, right? Black children are disproportionately represented in suspension and expulsion rates, and they're more likely to be streamed into applied courses instead of academic ones. And yeah, that's frustrating as hell because all of that ties into income distribution. And to compound things, the Board of Health, right? The Toronto Board of Health said that black women in Ontario earn 57 cents for every dollar that a white man makes. That's ridiculous. Now, black children who live with food insecurity, they may lack the proper brain-fueling foods for school, which can obviously affect behavior and education. That's common sense. What's actually a poverty issue is constantly misread as lack of academic aptitude, a racially-based behavioral issue. Black boys, for example, might be seen as aggressive, and black girls, they might experience adultification or be seen as and treated as older than they actually are. And this usually results in harsher disciplinary action. It's not right. Now, consider a black child who may be acting out. That could be because they're experiencing food insecurity at home because employment bias made it next to impossible for their parents to reach the heights that they're capable of reaching. On top of that, on top of all the microaggressions that black people have to face at literally every single turn, black people face name bias, you know, especially if our names sound too ethnic. You see that same kid who might have been acting up before? Maybe their mom or dad just lost their job after not being viewed as a good cultural fit in pretty much an all-white company. And maybe their parents have been struggling to find a new job quickly, all while the stress of having to provide for their family, right? That elevates their cortisol levels, making them 
like many black folks, a lot more susceptible to health conditions like type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease. Or maybe the parents are frontline healthcare workers who unfortunately aren't paid a salary that reflects the importance of their job as they face higher risks of COVID-19 infection. These interconnected factors, I seriously hope, demonstrate how social determinants of health are impacted by discrimination. Health is affected by everything in life, and for black people, everything in life is affected by racism. So racism affects health outcomes. It's that simple. That is the simple truth. And obviously, action is what black people are calling for. Action is what health leaders are pushing for. My guest for today, Dr. Anya Nyerom, she's gonna elaborate on what she's seen from her perspective as a public health specialist and some steps that we can take to adequately address the issues at hand. It's gonna take a collective approach, but I feel that this conversation is a great starting point. So, Dr. O, first of all, I'd like to thank you for coming on today to Here to Stay podcast. And I just want to start off with asking you to share your story to the listeners, you know, give them a little bit about yourself. Wow. So first of all, I am very uh, excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Um, So a little bit about myself there, you know, there's many facets to me, but I suppose just the quicker level is, um, so I'm a, I'm a family doctor and public health physician. Um, I'm of Nigerian and Trinidad, Trinidadian uh, background, grew up in Montreal. Um, I practice um, public health, but my focus is around um, education and around anti-Black racism um, and around um, understanding how racism impacts health. So I hold a number of different uh, roles or positions or jobs or however you want to put it, but most of it is around um, health and justice, um, largely at the University of Toronto. And, um, and I'm also a mom and a wife and a daughter. And um, yeah, I'm just, I just really enjoy um, doing work uh, in community with community to address issues that um, impact our health. Good, good. I like that. Um, and I was just wondering, in terms of um, obviously your background, you did mention that you are a family physician and do work within public health. Now, mm-hmm. I know that being um, a family physician that does grant you a large platform to obviously um, impact change because the medical profession, um, we, uh, you do help and you do help others, obviously, um, either in clinical settings or outside of clinical settings. And I was just wondering, uh, what hope or what is your hope, uh, to have on the medical profession when everything's said and done? You know? Oh, big questions. All right. So First, I kind of need to take a step back because you said it's a platform and it is, but not everybody uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, my work in most of my work actually is more in, in public health, but I do see um, I do see patients once a week. Um, but for a lot of people, I think they focus on patient care, 
like the one-on-one, which is important. Mm -hmm. But my passion has always been more public health, like thinking about the population, the community and how to address change. And so um, I think it was like in the fourth or fifth year of my um, final residency training. Um, So that's where you do the training as as you're already a doctor, but you do extra training. I wrote kind of like a a mission statement for myself, like a company does. But Mm -hmm. I really said that I want to have a positive impact on Black community health, on women's health, but also do it in a way that inspires other marginalized communities. And I want to have that impact. So that's always been my North Star. Like I know why I'm here. I know what I want to use my gifts towards. And then there's different ways to do that. And it's almost like I'm in a forest. And so I might walk this way. It might be a dead end. I might, but I know where my North Star is. I know where I'm headed, um, which has helped me through things to, you know, if I have a job and it's not in alignment or I'm thinking about doing something and it's not in alignment with where I want to be headed, where I think I can make an impact that I, I will not do it. Or if I enter and I realize it's a mismatch is taking me off course, then I uh, will leave that, that job um, politely, but I will exit left. Um, but I feel like, like those are the types of gifts I've been given. So whether it's through research or advocacy or my main thing, which is like education and and speaking and hopefully inspiring people, um, that's the work that I want to do over time. It's evolved. When I finished my medical training, um, I was more focused on black health in the sense that I wanted to quote unquote, fix the black community, because that's what I learned in medicine. Unfortunately, medicine and public health teaches us, um, it's changing now, but has largely taught us that like black bodies are diseased or pathologized, or there's something wrong with our culture or genetics. So we need to basically become more like white people, like go jogging and eat carrots or, you know, whatever I'm giving that as like an example. Right. But it's like, no, you could actually dance and eat okra and -hmm. do other things. Right. Like you don't have to do that. But the other thing that it ignores is the impact that um, historical and present day racism and structural oppression have on our health. Mm-hmm. So when I came out, I worked in community at a community health center called Taibu Community Health Center. And I saw so many beautiful things there. Um, I saw, I actually largely ended up de-prescribing a lot. Like I, I had patients who had diabetes or had high blood pressure, but when they knew that the kind of foods that they could cook and, and do it in a heart healthy manner, we had like soca size, we had laughter yoga, people who felt isolated, felt reconnected. And so they were healthier. And so I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? It's not just the prescriptions. It's that sense of connection. It's that learning, it's community. And the executive director there, when I got there, he had said it to me. He's like, any problem the community has, mm-hmm. the answers are in the community. You just have to pay attention and you have to listen. So, so then after a while, I shifted my focus less so on quote unquote, how to fix the community, but actually seeing that I was seeing people who were experiencing depression and de- distress because they were, you know, maybe going to get deported or they were losing their jobs or they were, you know, had minimal resources or they had a high education, but could never get the jobs that they're supposed to get for their level of education. And all of those things are how structural racism manifests. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I want to do that. So I've now shifted. I'm more located in white spaces as opposed to being in community in Scarborough. I still work like what's we just we actually just published a paper today. So we, I still work with Taibu, mm-hmm. but um, my most of my time is at U of T trying to disrupt and dismantle the structures um, that affect us. And so that's partially educating 
you know, young healthcare providers, but also advocating for change with community because you don't do it by yourself. Yeah. The Western model is you, you're this one person who changes things, but no, it's done in community and solidarity. So being yeah. part of that. And then finally, um, advocating for more uh, Black uh, people in medicine so that I'm not a lone voice. And that has been successful and also done in community and collaboration. So that's how things have shifted. I've gone from trying to quote unquote, fix the Black community to more trying to fix uh, a racist society that we live in. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And you brought up a point about having um, obviously more representation within the healthcare profession, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what can be done more than, than what's being done, you know? Right. So, I mean, there's so much that needs to be done, but like, so first of all, we, I'm speaking specifically about medicine because yeah. in fact, we're overrepresented, I believe in nursing and yeah. in, as PSWs. So, yeah. but um, the way healthcare is structured is that medicine is, holds the greatest power and there are, we are severely underrepresented there. So um, again, working with um, uh, teams. So actually the, the main leader, I would say in this uh, change where we've gone from like one black medical student a few years ago, mm -hmm. um, Chica Stacey Oriwa, um, to then having eight and then what was it like 14, 15, 26, and I think this year 21, like the sustainable increase has been the work of Ike Okafor, right? Who leads the summer mentorship program, community of support, these types of innovative programs where we're changing structures. It's not just the one person helping out, you know, the one uh, black kid who comes to their office, which is often how the mentorship ends up working for a lot of black physicians. They, you know, mentor somebody in their office. Uh, but that doesn't change the structure. So it has been about structural change. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, U of T set up the Black Student Application Program, which is again about structural change. It's the same criteria, but it's more culturally appropriate in the way that it's done. So, so that has led to significant change, but we need to see that across the country. And since last year, after the murder of George Floyd and the greater activism that has been done, um, there's more of an understanding in the medical schools that their, their systems and their structures are racist. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and by racist, it doesn't mean it has to be intentionally racist. It's just maintaining the policies and practices that largely kept us out of medical school. And I'm not even talking about the formal ones like we have at Queen's University where there actually was a direct policy saying you cannot have Black uh, medical students, right? Mm -hmm. Which they only, they didn't follow that recently, but they only officially took it off the books last year. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the more implicit stuff, right? About mm -hmm. how you get in. Um, and so we need to see that across the country. We need to see more resources. So like you went to the summer men mentorship program, which is a really great program for high school students who are Black and Indigenous mm -hmm. to be exposed to the health sciences. But there needs to be more funding and more opportunities for that to happen for high school students across the country, right? Not just a small pocket of people. So that needs to happen. The funding needs to happen. But one of the things that I'm working on right now is then, okay, so these medical schools say, come black medical students, we would like you, we want diversity, we want diversity of thought, but then black medical students enter these spaces and they experience extreme racism, classism, all types of isms mm -hmm. um, because of, because medicine came out of colonialism, really, right? It's yeah. this colonialist perspective where, uh, you know, the white male, 70 kilogram male or whatever is the ideal patient 
and everybody else is somehow you know, inferior or damaged, like women or, or human beings lacking a penis kind of, you know what I mean? Like it's that kind of bizarre thinking that isn't explicit, but still exists in medicine. And so they experience a number of different um, forms of exclusion, lack of mentorship, lack of opportunities. So we've been working, particularly the Black Physicians Association of Ontario. So I'm president and we've been working with the medical school. So there's a network that's recently been formed to dismantle anti-Black racism um, in uh, medical schools. So working on that, um, trying to make it safer space for Black medical students. And people don't often think about this because I mentioned like the work that has to be done to get more Black students into medicine. But when we get into the space, it's the retention really, aspect, right? Hmm? The retention aspect, right? Yeah, it's the it's it's the retention, but also like the the what's the word? Almost like the projection of that person's yeah. career, right? Mm -hmm. If it's dampened and destroyed, and their morale is is destroyed, or their voices are muted, then it doesn't benefit the community. They don't end up at the tables, and that's basically what we saw with COVID nineteen, mm -hmm. right? Like. Black communities were saying we're going to be, there were leaders, they published a, a, you know, a statement saying we're going to be disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. We need more resources. We need people thinking. We need collection of race-based data. Yeah. But the people at the table, and these are some of my public health colleagues, but mm -hmm. they're at the table. There, it, there isn't Black representation, yeah. right? Um, so when we're muted, when we're excluded, and you know what I mean, in these ways, then we're not at the tables. We're not part of the decision-making and the community suffers. Mm -hmm. So this is not just about advancing Black doctors for the sake of advancing them or for people to win awards. It's for people to be able to keep their authenticity, keep mm -hmm. their mental health, rise into these spaces and be comfortable enough to be in inclusive spaces where they can disrupt and change medicine. Mm -hmm. So that is some of the work that I've been focusing on now, particularly because there are so many others, um, including like the Black Health Alliance and like I said, the work of Ike Okafor that's focused more on what happens before medical school. So I'm most focused on what happens when you're black in medicine and how you use that to, to change and provide care in, in communities. So it's, it's been fun, uh, but that's what's going on. And that's hopefully where we're headed. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, I, I like that vision of where, where we could and should head, you know? Um, mm. And one thing that you did mention um, is the lack of race-based data, right? Um, in a lot of things, right? Um, yeah. That makes me think that, yeah, even though a lot of media outlets, for example, advertise that um, we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I personally thought, and I know that a lot of folks believe and know that we're dealing with two pandemics, you know? Uh, racism is a pandemic. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because they they're actually directly related, mm -hmm. right? They're not they're not they're two intersecting yeah. pandemics, and this was part of why last summer Toronto Public Health declared anti-black racism mm -hmm. a public health crisis. Yeah, because it is because of anti-black racism um, that you have people who have uh, uh, you know high education but end up being overrepresented as being frontline service workers, like people who could not stay home, people who are essential workers, people who are PSWs, people who were not given access to personal protective equipment because they hold lower you know, um, levels of power. So not only were they essential and they couldn't stay home and they don't have sick days, um, 
but then we didn't provide proper protection for them, mm-hmm. right? So we are overrepresented in, the, in, the, in that level. We have the everyday physiological stress of racism, which people don't realize, but it's an extra layer that affects our immune system, uh, our predisposition to chronic diseases, so that when Black people have gotten COVID-19, we're more likely to end up in the ICU than a, than a white person. Um, we have like so many compounding factors in there that mm-hmm. put us at greater risk for COVID-19 that are directly related to the historical legacy of anti-Black racism and our everyday experience of it. Mm-hmm. And so they very much intersect. And they also intersect also with the issues that are going on with the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. Like we have gone out to communities but I absolutely understand why so many Black people don't trust the vaccine yeah. because it's coming from healthcare, from government, and from researchers who mm. not, all three historically have not shown value for Black lives. Yeah. But on top of that, you know, what I'm hearing in community is where there were communities that are like, you know, lower income, racialized communities that said, can we have more buses in our area so we can <laughs> socially distance? And the government wasn't responding, right? Yeah. Like I said, people were asking for more PPE, nothing. And then it's like, oh, but come and get this, come and get this vaccine, yeah. come line up and come and get the injection. And I'm like, no, like I'm happy to help community and provide information and for, to respect people's decision. So I will, as a physician, provide that information, but I'm sorry, it is intergenerational wisdom to see like government and society say, okay, black people line up here. And you say, wait, hold on. Let me take a minute. I need more information because I'm not just going to go first in line. Uh, You know what I've said to a lot of the hospitals and other places. I'm like, if our ancestors were going to go first in line, every time Europeans said, come line up here and take this, some of us wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So, so that's intergenerational wisdom and people need to take the time to decide, but the pandemic of anti-black racism directly intersects with the pandemic. And a lot of us are really advocating because actually every hundred years is always a pandemic. And I'm like, we need to make sure that we are in a different like world, a different society, a different space mm-hmm. when the next pandemic hits, because there will be one, it'll be our grandchildren or whatever, but I'll be damned if we're in the same situation again, where anti-Black racism has again, put us at a significant disadvantage. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, anti-Black racism, not much outside the Black community is known about that in terms of the historical context that comes into play, uh, things like um, uh, vaccine hesitancy or just mistrust within the community on the whole, right? But um, I believe that the work of allies is important just as much as our work, you know? Absolutely. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are or what advice you have to allies in terms of coming to the table with genuine allyship, because I know that um, obviously coming to the table is one thing, but uh, that genuity is very important. Yeah. So allies play a critical role in all of these pieces. So even historically, like if those who hold more power uh, because of their whiteness or their financial privilege or whatever, do not stand in solidarity with other groups, nothing moves right? Like, you know, slavery doesn't end, like nothing moves. So it's critical, but it's about standing with, speaking with and not speaking for. It's about amplifying voices and not speaking for or amplifying their own or engaging in white saviorism. So my whole thing is 
um, it's, it's about coming at it. And there's situations where I also am acting as an ally, you know, for my indigenous colleagues or LGBTQ2S plus colleagues. So it's about coming at it with humility and saying, okay, how can I help? It, it's not about coming into it with your own agenda and your own ideas, because, you know, as I learned firsthand when I was at Taibu Community Health Center, if there are problems the community is facing, then the people best positioned to address the problems are within the community. But it's good to have allies to say, okay, did you know about this resource? Or let's take that here. Or how would you like me to help? Mm -hmm. And understanding that sometimes people say, sorry, I don't need your help. I don't trust you. Because trust is earned. It is not given. Exactly. Right? So that also is the case with the, the vaccine or anything else. So it's actually, it's not a mistrust. I call it a distrust. It is based on bad experiences, based on evidence. We have our yeah. own, like statistical evidence as to why there is a distrust it's mm -hmm. not misplaced it's it's warranted yeah so so where that is then it's like building trust and that takes time and so just like anything else right when you have perhaps wronged somebody or your ancestors wronged something it's it's going to take uh mm -hmm. time and patience and humility and so i i would say that to allies it's really listening reading learning and and again doing one's best to keep learning. So even for myself, as I said, as an ally, I make mistakes. I sometimes say the wrong thing because I've learned the wrong things or I've learned a colonialist way of thinking about something. I, I'm part of this society too. And so I apologize and I read up and I, I do my work and I keep moving. Um, I don't let that stop me that I could make a fool of myself, you know, as I'm trying to, to be an ally to others. So I think that's key. It's about listening and learning and following and supporting as opposed to coming in and taking up space and leading uh, or coming with the lens like you have all the answers, even though you, you do not have the lived experience. Mm -hmm. Very well said, Dr. O. Very well said. Thank and you. Another question I have, because uh, you have, like you've been, you've been speaking facts this whole time. Um, I try, I try. <laughs> um, another question I have is how do you, like, how do you continue to show up um, in these spaces, you know, authentically? Yes. So how do I continue to show up? Yeah, it's interesting. Like there's times where I, I show up in different ways and sometimes I don't show up. Like it really depends. It's, it depends on your personality. It depends on what gives you joy. I've been, you know, I'm that kid who experienced racism from, from the education system, right? Like, so, you know, being all of a sudden given D's by a teacher, whereas I was getting yeah. D's in the year after I, was, I had straight A's, right? Yeah. So that kind of thing from, from the system, right? Not the, of course you get teased, but I'm talking about where the system allows it to happen. Yeah. And so I've been that kid talking about like apartheid and whatever at show and tell in grade three, right? Like I've been that person. So that does give me joy. I think there's some people, it doesn't give them joy. It gives me joy to show up, but sometimes I'm exhausted. And so, um, I talked about my North star. So remembering my purpose helps me. So sometimes my thing is not about focusing on what I'm going through. I focus on where I'm going to. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's leaning on my peers. And for some of that, that's been uh, people who look like me and people who do not look like me. Sometimes it's women. Sometimes it's my indigenous colleagues. Sometimes it's my South Asian colleagues. Sometimes it's my black colleagues. Like it really depends on the situation because I felt like after George Floyd, we all as black people kind of burned out at the same time, um, you know, from the pain and the grief. So I definitely leaned on um, mm -hmm. more diverse 
uh, uh, colleagues who, who showed up in solidarity, like true solidarity. Yeah. Um, I know my history, so I know how these things happen over and over. Um, I, I know the words actually, so I mentioned, I have a podcast, right? Race, health, and happiness. So that's mm -hmm. actually the purpose of it is to like, how do you stay healthy and happy despite systemic racism? So I learn from others. Um, mm -hmm. and I like one of the quotes that one of my guests, uh, Kika Ojo Thompson, who mm -hmm. is, um, an, an anti-oppression and, and equity, diversity, and inclusion specialist. She was like, when it comes to systemic white supremacy, you need to know the game board that you're playing on. And I felt like that resonated so much because if you think that it's just this linear system where it's a meritocracy and if you work really hard, you'll succeed, it is non-linear for us. As Black people, we work real hard. Most yeah. of us have multiple jobs, my, myself included, multiple jobs, and it doesn't pan out unless you understand the system that you're working in. Mm -hmm. um, that is not going to reward you the same as if your skin was painted white tomorrow mm -hmm. afternoon. So understanding how that works and understanding the systems really become uh, key. So, so there's that. And then having faith. Like I think for me as a Black woman, if I lived 100 years ago, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be in this place. Mm -hmm. So I do this work knowing that a little Black girl who will be born 100 years from now won't know the pain that I experienced. Like we do it for each other. We're part of a continuum. We, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it's a beautiful thing. And so I'm grateful for all of those who came before me, who look like me and don't look like me, who did the hard work that I can be where I am. And so I do that work with the vision that there are, are, are those still waiting uh, to be to be uh, born who will not know what we know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that those are the things that keep me going. And then I also have a therapist and, and I have family and I have friends. And sometimes sometimes I don't show up. Sometimes I say it's too much. Sorry, um, I'm not showing up, um, you know, politely with all due respect. So I do that, too, um, because I have been invited to some tables where you have to ask, why are you being invited to the table? Who owns the table? Yeah. And what's going on there? So um, so so there are situations where I said uh, thanks, but no thanks as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on that part of you not showing up sometimes, um, mm -hmm. is it okay to not show up? And because um, I know that folks my age just wanting to, um, to constantly be at the forefront of uh, a lot of different movements um, yeah. sort of struggle to reconcile showing up and not showing up, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, so for that, I mean, I would even quote, so again, one of my, my guests on my podcast, uh, Dr. Marsha Anderson. So she's an indigenous uh, physician and advocate. And she talked about like a really traumatic uh, situation that happened to her dad in healthcare. And then, so she, 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 generally she does what I do, which is turn pain to purpose, right? So it's like, yeah, I'm going to join the committee. I'm going to change the world, but she overstretched herself and then almost burnt out. And so she got a life coach who, you know, showed her that first of all, like a lot of these issues and barriers that we face are like infinite, like they happened years before us and we're not going to be able to solve them. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to be at all the tables, number one, we can't solve everything, but number two, we're not creating space for other people to step up. Right. So you're actually removing opportunity for others. They might not step up right away. I've, I've seen, you know, some tables I decided not to be at turn into an epic mess. But then after the mess, there was a recognition that something needed to be fixed. Right. Compared to if I had been in on that committee doing patchwork and stressing myself out. 
Um, so there are consequences to not showing up. Uh, it can be for your own career, but it could also be consequences for community. Right. But in the long run, if you have, you know, like the long term vision, mm-hmm. um, it does give opportunity for people to step up. And the other thing that she said was, you know, we have a right to joy. Like this is life. We have a human right to joy and happiness and, 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 you know, rest is also part of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you think about that as your human right, as a, as a human being, then it just doesn't make sense to show up everywhere because if you show up everywhere, you're not showing up for yourself. Mm-hmm. So you need to show up for yourself as well. You need to take care of yourself. You need to rest. And so that means it is impossible to always show up everywhere. Now there's ways to do that where you maintain relationships. It's, it's probably not ideal to not show up an hour before you're supposed to be somewhere, right? So you decline, you say maybe next time you recommend perhaps somebody else or you explain your situation. You say, so I learned this from a mentor. You have to be clear on your yes so that you can say an effective no. So you say, I'm working on this project right now. Like you might say, you know, I've got my, my podcast. I've got the wall of excellence. Um, you know, I'm pursuing my PhD. So I've got a lot going on. Um, so although this is a really great project you've just uh, brought to me right now, mm-hmm. this isn't a good time because I've got these things going on. So you're clear on your yes so that you can give an effective no. And if the person is a respectful person, they'll be like, oh, wow. Okay. You mm-hmm. know? And then even better, if you can rec- recommend another, you know, young black woman or young black man and say, but this person, mm-hmm. right, might want to do it or, or ally like this, this, you know, uh, young, uh, you know, white or South Asian or whatever, you know, uh, person mm-hmm. really is passionate about this. And I've got too many things on my plate. So mm-hmm. those are the ways to be able to not show up, but still show up for yourself because mm-hmm. nobody, the best person to take care of you is you, right? Most, most days anyway. <laughs> so you got to take care of you. Yeah. I like that. I like that because um, myself included, like we're not born activists. We're kind of activated at some point. You know? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so just um, just being able to say, you know what? No, um, now is not my time where I'm going to show up to this, but I'm still going to be a part of this by kind of preserving my faculty so that I can offer myself later. You know, um, that's 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 a really important balance that I'm, I'm glad you brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's it. But I like that activated at <laughs> some point, right? Yeah. yeah. For, for me, it was about, I guess, six or seven years old when I was activated. But mm-hmm. yeah, it happens at different stages. For so, I mean, some people, I guess it never happens. But yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I guess my final question for you is um, on the idea of race, health and happiness, right? Um, and just the radical black joy, right? Um, how do you go about uh, being intentional about you know, finding sources of black joy, just bringing it, you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I feel like there's so many sources because we just have to look at our ancestors or our aunties and our uncles or whatever, yeah. right? So it's it's gathering together, it's laughing together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a church person, but it's even some, you know, for others, it's singing in church. Like there is evidence for the endorphins that that brings. Yeah. We all have a chorus, a voice together. It's it's um, for me, it's dancing. So it's you know, carnival. It's 
um, really any fat, any part. So I'm half Nigerian, half Trini, as I said. <laughs> so, you know, any, any, um, any opportunity to, to come together and enjoy um, music. So particularly during the pandemic, I was always intentional about having my playlist. I'll dance in front of the mirror. I'll dance with my children. I will find time to dance like all day. I will close the door in my office. If I'm stressed out, I will dance. Um, you know, that's where I feel uh, the ancestors. Um, um, taking time to be in nature and walk and um, just sit with a tree, which I had to do last week, just sit with a tree and think about, you know, was it, was it, was this tree? Like how, how old was this tree when my ancestors walked the earth? Right. And like, just remembering that I'm part of a continuum. Um, but there are so many ways it's, it's in, in food. If you, you know, uh, watch that, what was it? Um, high on the hog or whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like these things of our tradition, mm-hmm. um, it's in our, um, stories and, you know, some of the African proverbs and like, it's just, it's actually everywhere. The problem is that Western society has made us either take it for granted, mm-hmm. uh, disregard it or think it's evil, or they sell it back to us in some other contorted, uh, form. So it's really about just thinking back about like, whether it's colonization or slavery, like our ancestors have been through a lot and mm-hmm. they found joy and it has been passed down to us in so many different ways. Just mm-hmm. have to pay attention. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was definitely really insightful. And again, just being able to reconnect with you after all these years, that's, that's huge, you know? Yeah. Again, thank you for having me. And I think it really is such a a beautiful thing that, uh, you know, you first met me with the summer mentorship program, which is the high school program. And then the producer of my podcast, I met him when I was in high school and he came as a medical student, uh, Dr. Carl Kebesel. So it's, I I think, and and it's that kind of outreach and connection again, I feel like is is our African way as well. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean African as a geopolitical, but thinking of ourselves as uh, descendants of the motherland right Mm -hmm. and and those connections and those beautiful moments where we inspire each other so this has been to to see you here and the things that you are doing uh also inspires me i have young black sons right they're four and five years old but seeing you this inspires me and i hope that we through this uh this episode uh, and the work that you're doing inspire others so thank you thank you thank you And is there anything that you'd like to let the listeners know about any upcoming projects that you may have or things like that? Oh my goodness. Um, Well, I mentioned the the podcast and people can check that out, Race, Health and Happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, We just published a paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal um, speaking about some of these issues around Black community-led vaccine clinics and Mm -hmm. how to respect and show dignity to Black patients, to our our colleagues to understand about that. and yeah, I think those are the the big things um, that have, are, are happening right now. But I'm happy to uh, reconnect with you on uh, on Instagram uh, to to give you more updates. But uh, those are the the main things. Thank you. Prior to my conversation with Dr. Narom, 
I mentioned that action is what health leaders are calling for, and action is also what black people are calling for. I want you to remember this because anti-black racism is a systemic, deep-seated, and long-established injustice. Any plans that call for action really require a full-scope approach to understanding the ways that anti-black racism impact health. And it's not to be underestimated at all. It begins with scientific racism that's actually embedded in medical school training. You know, that creates the problem ranging from struggles that go into finding dermatologists that actually understand darker skin to maternal mortality rates amongst black mothers. That help or added action that we call for is because anti-black racism looks like inherent biases that say that black people can tolerate pain better than white people or that we're more likely to be addicts or drug dealers, which makes it hard for us to get pain management interventions. It's ridiculous. Recognizing anti-black racism as a public health crisis is important as a first step, but there's a long journey ahead that's going to be full of unlearning, relearning, listening, and accountability. It means that we're going to have to work hard to open spaces for black doctors or healthcare professionals to not only get in, but stay in and exceed in their careers. I often ask myself this, that if this is what's going on in my mind, what's happening inside the minds of other black people who deal with and cope with the trauma of experiencing overt and covert racism? right? That's tough. On top of that, just imagine trying to absorb a news cycle that's full of black death and injustice. That's not healthy. That's not right. That's not fair. So if you have ears and are an ally, listen. All things considered, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's really stopped the world in its tracks, but we're beginning to move forward. And the COVID-19 pandemic, on the whole, because it caused us to sort of close up shop in a lot of things, it made us really take a critical look at how things are operating. And it really forced us to reckon with the inequities of our previous world and just really sit down and figure out how are we going to create a new normal moving forward? The pandemic of anti-black racism, we all know it's ravaged the world for centuries. Now, now is our time to eradicate it. Now is the time to create and set up a new normal that's healthy and inclusive for all of us. Anti-black racism is just as much a pandemic as COVID-19.